Welcome to our podcast series, Talking with Traders, hosted by expert trader Garth McKenzie in London, from where he's interviewing various guests on the topic of trading. Welcome to season two of the Talking with Traders podcast series with me, Garth McKenzie. In this season, I'll be interviewing various successful traders and investors in my network and asking them pertinent questions about their career in the financial markets. I'll also be discussing how they've dealt with the recent surge in market volatility following the outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemic and how they are viewing the future as we all adjust to a new way of working. We'll also be talking about market themes that are likely to gain traction in a post-COVID-19 world. Joining me on today's podcast is a man I have a huge amount of respect for, Jean-Pierre Foster, who's the CEO of Protea Capital Management. Uh, he was formerly with 361 uh, Asset Management, a hedge fund manager there, and he's one of the guys that doesn't really need much introduction in terms of the South African financial community. He's often on TV, often on the radio, very eloquent, explains things incredibly well. And I must say, I thoroughly enjoy uh, watching and listening to you on, on TV and on radio, JP. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Garth. Uh, great to be here and uh, great to be talking to you. Yeah, thank you very much. So as I said to you before we, we came on uh, to this recording, it's just an informal chat, really. It's informal, but informative. And informative is something I've always admired about you, um, I, I must say. I think you must have a huge amount of ability to consume information because whenever I've seen you on um, on Stockwatch, for example, on Business Day TV, I've just been blown away by the level of knowledge that you have of companies and investments and things. Um, and before we came on this call, I, I saw your bookshelf behind you on the Zoom uh, chat and you've got a huge number of books on your shelf. So I can imagine you're very, very well read. Um, but tell us a little bit about your background, if you don't mind, Jean-Pierre. When did, when did you start investing in the market or start trading? And what got you involved in, in this business to begin with? Sure. Um, so it's probably it's 20 years ago now that I finished with school and started studying. And um, I had an interest in business uh, while at school and decided to study to become a chartered accountant. And that's now 20 years ago. So when I started, I also had a passion for the markets and I created my own trading account on a CFD platform 20 years ago. Uh, it was still very new, this idea of leverage trading and for retail investors to be able to go long and short different stocks and currencies and commodities. And that's where it really started. And that's where the bug properly bit me. Uh, so it's been a while now, and as you say, to, to link it back to your uh, comments on reading, um, I started off and I had heard of Warren Buffet, that someone then told me, no, it's Warren Buffett is the correct pronunciation. Uh, and, and that helped me to then also move from just trading and basically starting off as most people do without really acknowledging or understanding fundamentals, just looking at technical analysis to over the years then taking more cognizance of fundamentals and reading about investment greats like Warren Buffett and a lot of others that we can talk about a little bit later uh, to where I am today. So yes, I've read about a third of the books on my bookshelf. There's still two thirds to go and the bookshelf collection keeps on growing. Um, but it's been quite a journey from starting off as a lot of students maybe do with a trading 
account to where I am today and how I've developed my trading philosophy and strategies. Well, that's very interesting. And, it, and, and like so many of the people I've interviewed on these podcasts, you started at school and got an interest very early, early on in your life and, um, and, and grew from there. But what were those first years like? I mean, a lot of us, and I count myself as one of these people, I also started at school, but I was a disaster to begin with. And uh, I couldn't make money probably for my first five or six years. I just couldn't make money. I, I made every mistake under the sun. Uh, and that's been quite a common thread with a number of the traders and investors that I've interviewed through this podcast series. What were your first years like uh, when you began this pursuit of trading and investing? So the first two to three years, I, I won some and lost some. And then roughly three years into it, I, I had a lucky break. And I'm, I made quite a bit of money. I, I tripled my money in a very short space of time. Uh, obviously, as a lot of people do, I then confused luck with skill. And after having tripled my money, I then very quickly thereafter lost it all and then funded my trading account again and then lost the additional funded money as well. So that was an important lesson to be learned. And I, I try to, as I go through life, my, my first choice is to learn from other people's mistakes. But if I don't get that right, when I do need to learn from my own mistakes, I try to learn from small mistakes. So at the time, it felt like a lot of money to lose all my money and the extra funded amount as well. But in hindsight, it was a small amount. And having learned that lesson with a small amount really helped me today. Um, so yes, similar to a lot of other traders that start out, I, I lost everything effectively. And that also forced me to, to think about wh why did I lose all this money? And because as a student, it was, it, it was, it was a lot for me. And I, <laughs> that, that put me on this journey to say, well, I was trading based on or based without an appreciation for fundamental value. And that's why I started reading about the difference between price and value and that the market is like uh, uh, Benjamin Graham called it Mr. Market, where it's the schizophrenic individual, if you think about the analogy, where sometimes the market prices are too high, sometimes they're too low. But to know if they're too high or too low, one needs to bring it back to the fundamental value. And if you trade, you try to arbitrage the price with the value. And it's only at all because of, the, of, of losing so much at the beginning that I started this journey to say, let me look at trading differently. Let me rather look at it as investing. And let me try and arbitrage price and value. But to be able to do that, I need to first teach myself the skill of deciphering and trying to assess what is true fair value. Okay. It's very interesting. And it's interesting to know that you went through such a tough patch in the beginning. Um, like so many of us do and paid those heavy school fees. If I may ask, I mean, what would you put that down to? You say you, lost, you tripled your money, then you lost it all and some more. What was that? Overgearing or, or what caused that? Yes. So I think the first thing is anyone that triples their money in a relatively short space of time is probably using a lot of leverage. So I did use a lot of leverage, which works wonderfully on the upside, uh, but has the same effect on the downside, seeing that it's a double-edged sword. So uh, it was too much leverage combined with overconfidence. Uh, so as I had winning positions, I thought that I was very clever and I would know what happens next and increasing positions so they became too big. So my risk management was not good. Um, so those were the three, I would say. Leverage plus overconfidence plus 
uh, bad risk management by too big position sizes. Yeah, that's it. I mean, I always say to people, there's only a very few ways that you can really um, lose a lot of money in the stock market, but yet a lot of people manage to find those few ways to do it. And um, it's interesting to hear that you also went down that path. But you talk about value, um, and you also did uh, a little bit earlier mention something around technicals. Now, I've always seen you as more of a fundamental kind of a guy. Um, so I was interested to hear that you did mention the word technicals there. But if we look at yourself now with 20 years of experience in the game and a very good pedigree and a good reputation in the business, what is your primary sort of strategy now when it comes to trading and investing? So the, 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 the trading strategy or investment philosophy that we follow is called a quantumental investment philosophy that I've developed over these last 20 years. And the word quantumental is basically just a mishmash of the words fundamental and quantitative. And it implies that we have combined fundamental analysis, so uh, thinking about the quality of a business and doing the traditional analysis of the company itself, combined with some quants, which is also based on company data, but it's, it's utilizing algorithms to, to assess fair value and combining those two. I mentioned to you that in the early years, I did look at technical analysis, but my thinking in that regard has also developed a bit where I still see a, a price graph as having some value, some informational content. But the way that I've developed this quantumental process is to overlay our quantumental outputs assessment of fair value against the share price and then looking for those gaps between price and value. So I don't look at price charts in isolation anymore. So one can say I've moved away from traditional technical analysis. But the quants are important and this overlay is important to graphically show me prices versus value. And in that way, I still have a visualization of, of the price versus the value, which assists me in making investment decisions. Okay. All right. I like that word, quantumental. Is, is that uh, it's a term I've not really heard before. And... Um, it's, it's unique to you. So I think it's very, very interesting to hear that. If we now go forward and look um, in terms of best trades and worst trades. Now, you became somewhat famous in South Africa for the, the short on African Bank when you were still at 361. And uh, that obviously that share price went to zero and you guys were short of that stock in your portfolios. And, and I know that you uh, received a lot of credit for that. So I presume that must count as one of the best. But I mean, I don't know if you want to talk about that one particularly or if there are others. But have you got a best trade in mind that really stands out for you in your career? So um, it's an interesting one. If you talk about best trade, one might want to think it's the one with the highest percentage return, which is true. But I also like the idea of looking at the best trade as one that very few people got right. And African Bank falls in both categories. Um, we made a lot of money for the funds with that short. And it was also a short where at the time uh, there was a lot of resistance, not a lot of people who agreed with um, our assessment of what would happen with African Bank and that it would effectively go bust. Um, since then, um, I would also add Steinoff to the list. Um, I was short Steinoff in the funds uh, before it uh, fell in a heap. And uh, we did good fundamental analysis and came across these off-balance sheet entities before 
the auditors uh, decided uh, that they would not sign off on the financial statements because of these off-balance sheet entities. So we made a lot of money with Steinoff as well. So those are two shorts that come to mind. Interesting enough, as a percentage, my best short has actually been Rebosis. Um, I think uh, since when we started shorting Rebosis probably three years ago to today, the Rebosis B shares, the shares are probably down 99%. So in percentage terms, that has been our best short, interestingly enough, but no one has really spoken about that. But sure. in percentage terms, the best trade might actually have been on the long side because there you can make more than 100% before any gearing. And on the long side, we've held Naspash for a long time. So that has been a wonderful trade. And then um, during the go-go years of the uh, Real Estate Investment Trust market in South Africa, um, I had quite significant holdings in uh, Nepi, uh, before it became Nepi Rockcastle, as well as in Fortress, the Fortress B shares. So those are some of the names on the long side where we made multiples of our investments, uh, two, three, four, five hundred percent before gearing. Um, so after gearing, because a hedge fund is normally geared, uh, it means we made even more than that. But it did not get quite the, the media exposure that the shorts like African Bank and, and Steinoff did. But those are some of the memorable ones. But importantly, I, I would add one more thing, Garth, and that's to say that when we do have these trades that really work well, we, we never have an enormous amount of our portfolio in these trades. Something else I learned in, in the, developing a good risk management system is to be highly diversified. So it does mean that when we have winners, they help, but we won't have that our whole fund doubles just because one position doubles. And similarly, yes. it means that when we are wrong, we never get hurt too much because that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to systematically make money through being right more often than we, than we are wrong and making more money when we are right versus what we lose when we are wrong. And if we com com can combine those two, having a higher probability of being right and a better payoff profile when we are right, we believe that's the, the, the lower risk way to make money versus just looking for these, these winners that you try to eat out of the park. But if you take too high a position in them, uh, then you also have the risk of, of making significant losses. Yeah, that's 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 great, and I mean you've you've alluded a little bit to risk there, um, and that was going to be my next question. So, what is your approach to risk? You've obviously got quite a systematic approach. You talk about diversification. You talk about having offsetting longs and shorts. Um, but are there any anything else you can add to that? I mean, do you have a specific amount, for example, that you're willing to to lose on a trade before or an investment before it becomes it goes beyond what is acceptable and then you cut a trade for for example so firstly i would say that our funds have got certain risk limits for the funds as a whole so on our two retail hedge funds which are open to the general public there's a 200 percent gross limit uh, of our gearing uh, which is applicable to all retail hedge funds so we can never take more than 200 rand of exposure for every 100 rand of capital in the fund which for a lot of traders is actually quite low leverage. Uh, we also have a qualified investor age fund that has a million rand minimum. That can go up to 400%, but we've never gone close to 400%. So the leverage limit on the fund as a whole uh, informs also then uh, what our positions would be in terms of individual uh, shares. Uh, on an individual basis, we have another limit, and that's a 15% limit, 1.5, regarding any individual position. 
And we've only once really got close to a 15% position. Most of our positions are less than 10%, uh, even less than 5%. And we, at any point in time, have between 80 positions in our South African retail hedge fund to closer to 120 positions on our global retail hedge fund. So that gives you some idea that we are very diversified in our approach. And that is our primary risk management tool, to be very diversified, have longs, have shorts. Uh, we don't do pairs. So we don't try to say that if we have a long, say, in the retail sector or in the platinum mining sector, we necessarily need to have a short as well in that sector. We do have sector exposures that are not always hedged out. Um, and similarly, uh, although we have individual positions uh, that are relatively small, if you add them all together, we are cognizant if we do have significant sector exposure. Um, like if we did have, say, 10 different positions in the retail sector, each one of them 5%, we would not find that prudent because that would be a 50% exposure to the retail sector. You're listening to Talking With Traders, a podcast series brought to you by IG, a world-leading online trading and investment provider. If you haven't checked out the IG online trading platform, please do so and visit IG.com. Also, make sure you subscribe to the podcast series on your favorite podcast app or website by clicking on the subscribe button and you'll be notified weekly as we release new episodes. I would also mention that we don't have stop losses. I do believe that stop losses are, are perhaps a, a, a good way of risk management for a trading strategy. But for an investment strategy, when the price goes against us, what we do is we revisit the reason why we have the position. And if you're long a stock, uh, we've been long stocks that have gone against us and kept on because the, the problem, the position gets smaller. We might not add to the position. Sometimes we might cut the position, but sometimes we might add to the position. On short positions, though, it's a bit of a different story because when you are wrong on a short position, it becomes a bigger part of your portfolio. So there we are more aggressive that even though we don't have a stop loss based on a certain price, when a short goes against us, we are very quick to cover a portion of the short so that the short doesn't blow out and really hurt us. So diversification is the major tool. And then I would add to that to say that we revisit the reason why we have a position and really make sure that we have as much confidence as we can in the fundamental analysis of why we have the position in the first place. Okay, interesting. And do you use any option structures within the fund as well to try and create hedging strategies or not? Yes, we like to use option strategies given that it's a, a relatively limited downside. You can only lose the option premium, but you have significant upside if you're right and the option moves uh, through the strike price. The problem in South Africa is that the single stock option market is very illiquid, which means that the pricing is very expensive. So unfortunately, we wish we could have more options in our South African fund, but we don't have that much. We can only really have options in the top 20 to 25 shares because the option market in South Africa, the single stock option market is not very liquid. On the global side though, the option markets are a lot more liquid. So there we can have single stock options and we also have uh, uh, Forex options. Because our funds are denominated in RANDs, but our global fund trades in international markets, it means all other things being equal, if the RAND should strengthen, that is bad for our RAND investors. So we've made use of options quite successfully to protect against the strengthening of the RAND. And, uh, and we've got an option hedging strategy or program to make sure that, uh, that we hedge our Forex uh, position, but only if the RAND should strengthen. 
we still want to maintain our exposure to a weakening rand, and that's where options are particularly useful. Okay, that's interesting. So with this recent blowout in the RAND, you would have done very well on your funds in, in RAND terms, I presume. And then I would imagine you must have put some sort of a hedging structure in once the RAND was at those weaker levels above sort of 19 RAND to the dollar or something like that. Exactly. So when the RAND went through 19, we put on a 17 RAND to the dollar put. Uh, that was roughly three months ago. Uh, two to three months ago. And at that point in time, that option was quite cheap because 17 was far out of the money, even where the RAND was trading. And not a lot of people thought that the RAND could strengthen back to 17 anytime soon. Now that the RAND has strengthened below 17, it means that option is nicely in the money and that offsets the losses that we incurred on translation when we translate our dollar positions back into RAND. So once again, the options is part of a hedge so it's not as if we've made a lot of money, but we protect money on the downside. And then through a full economic cycle of bull and bear markets, we think that if you can protect against the deep drawdown through using options and other techniques of shorting, but still capture most of the upside, you can outperform markets over a full cycle. Okay, very, very interesting. JP, you've spoken about um, some of your best trades, the spin-offs, the, the African banks, and then some of the other best ones that were longs, the net piece, the fortress piece, et cetera, et cetera. We haven't touched on worst trades yet. Are there any that stand out in your mind as being worst trades in your, in your career in recent times? So earlier on in my career, uh, I had a look at the financial statements of a company called Alliance Mining. And I had a look at the price, and it was trading at a, at a 2 PE and a dividend yield of close to 20%. And I thought, wow, this, this company is an amazing steal. I must be the only person who knows about it. And I bought quite a significant chunk of the shares in, in my personal portfolio. Uh, later on, I heard that the FD of the company, the financial director of the company, was also the financial director of another company on the JSE. And although that should have rang alarm bells that uh, normally an FD position is full-time, that you shouldn't be the financial director of more than one company, I sort of dismissed it and held on to the shares. Uh, later on, the company went bust. They needed to restate their financials. And there was a, a, a FSCA investigation into that financial director. And I effectively lost my, my full investment because the company's shares were suspended. So that was the worst investment I ever made. Um, and other than the, the early years of trading as a student, the only time that I've lost 100% of my investment. So uh, that was also another lesson where I felt at least it didn't cost me too much. I didn't do it with client funds. It was my own funds. And that also taught me not to just look at financial statements, read the annual report and stop there but really think about who are the people involved? What are some of the softer issues? And as Phil Fisher says, to utilize scuttlebutt, that means to ask around whether suppliers or customers or competitors, what other people think of this company, and that those softer issues are as important as the numbers presented by the company, even though sometimes there might be audited numbers, the auditors also sometimes miss things. So Alliance Mining uh, stands out. And then more recently, every now and then, there's a short that goes against me, uh, goes against us in the funds. Sassol is the most recent example where uh, we, we have been short now for a while. And, uh, and the shares have effectively gone up five times 
uh, from uh, 25 Rand to 125 Rand. But as our risk management process has evolved, it does mean that we kept on covering a portion of the position as the shares kept on rising. Um, but in total, that, that is a quite, a quite a big loss for us. You wouldn't see it in the fund return. Our fund still had a positive return last month, for instance. Uh, but that, that did hurt us, and uh, we did learn from previous experience to make sure that it didn't hurt us more than what it did. We still think Sassol is in trouble, effectively, but now we need to wait for the June results to see if we are correct in our assessment. Yeah, I think it's been a very, very painful short for a lot of people. We've seen very squeezy action there lately, and I think a lot of us in the market expecting them to come out with a rights issue anytime soon. So um, you may yet be, be on the right side of that trade. But if we look forward now, um, JP, obviously we've come through this COVID, or we're right in the middle of it, I guess, COVID-19, the coronavirus, and the, the, everything that has done to the world, the lockdown and what have you. And there are some out there that are saying it's, there's certain things that are going to change forever. Uh, and, and I guess I've been racking my brain as a trader and an investor to try and see where the opportunities might be. And we, we are seeing it in the stock markets around the world, you know, the, the rally in the NASDAQ and in the, in the S&P 500, for example, being led by these new age tech stocks like Zoom Communications, for example, that we're talking on right now. Um, and the other techs, the Facebooks, the, the Amazons, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then a lot of these old economy kind of companies are really not performing well at all. So we've got a very divergent market at the moment between old economy type businesses and new uh, tech type businesses. In that respect, are there any specific themes that you are focusing on and, and seeing and, and maybe trying to capitalize on looking forward? So a few things. I think firstly, our global portfolio has been tech heavy on the long side for the last three years or so. So uh, we've benefited from tech stocks doing so well. Uh, similarly, we have been short heavy industry stocks, including in the oil and gas industry in the US and elsewhere. And that has also worked for us. So, um, so I see a continuation of that trend. Uh, just the way the, the world is moving, I think tech will become increasingly important. The trick is there uh, is not to overpay. And I think where we are now, there's a greater risk of overpaying for this growth that will be delivered by a lot of these tech stocks today than at any point in the recent past. So I'm cautious on tech stocks now, not because on fundamentals, but because of valuation. Um, and I'm still bearish on, call it old economy stocks, because I think that they might look cheap on a low price to earnings ratio or low price to book ratio, but they don't have a lot of growth ahead in general. And, and that means that what looks cheap can become even cheaper. So I see a continuation of that. Um, but in broad terms, mm. Go on. but in broad terms, I do think that markets are now quite expensive and I, I don't see a V-shaped recovery happening when it comes to the operational performance of companies. It's interesting that markets are implying a V-shaped recovery. If you look at share prices, what has happened. But also I've been thinking about this and I think a lot of investors might be looking at rate of change and the shape of a rate of change graph being V-shaped and thinking that that is equal to a price level V-shaped graph. And it's not. And to make it more, more simplistic, if something is down 50% and then up 50%, it's actually still down 25%. Mm. 
<laughs> so you go from 100 to 50, that's down 50, and then to go up 50, that takes you back to 75. You don't go back to 100. So when certain rate of change indicators show a V-shaped recovery, it doesn't mean that the price action should be back where it started. And I think a lot of investors might be getting that wrong and are overestimating the uh, recovery. And that's why I'm actually very cautious on valuations at the moment. Mm. You've put that in such a succinct way, as I, as I can only expect from you, JP. But that makes a hell of a lot of sense about the rate of change not equaling the price change. If we, we were nearly getting towards the end of the time now for the interview, um, but if you had to give anybody advice, a new newbie starting out in this business, um, say someone like yourself 20 years ago, coming out of varsity, wanting to now get involved in the, in the market uh, as a career, have you got any particular pointers you would give to them? I would say, as with any field of knowledge or field of study, if you really want to hone a skill, if you really want to get really good at something, you need to keep on studying. You need to keep on learning. You need to absorb as much as you can. And to your point early on in the interview, Garth, uh, most of my day is spent sitting and reading. So I am a, a, a student of the market. I read everything I can regarding specific companies. I read about, um, about other investors that are not fundamentally inclined, like Clifford Asnett, Ness at AQR Capital, or Jim Simons at Renaissance Capital, and try to incorporate some of the things that they've done into my process. So always trying to improve. And I would say for anyone interested in the market, try to improve all the time. Together with that, I would say when you start off, you need to acknowledge that you are a novice, and therefore start small. Don't be overconfident, um, but start with your own money. You will lose money, <laughs> but it's okay to lose. Just lose small. And if you lose small, but you take the, the, the lessons of that and you take it to heart, it will be good for you going forward that you don't repeat those lessons. Uh, and that, I would say, is, is, is my top two, two, uh, two pointers. Always be a student of the market and try to improve all the time and start small and cautiously and know that you are a novice, so don't get overconfident. Yeah, absolutely. We all pay school fees, ultimately. There's no shortcut to success in this business or anything else for that matter. And um, just quickly, JP, on books, you obviously we've spoken about books. You've got a huge bookshelf behind you on, on, on the call here that I can see. Um, but if you had to pick out just to say two or three uh, books that you think are an absolute must read for everybody uh, wanting to get involved in this business. Are there any that really stand out for you that you can recommend? So before I get to books, I would say that I always find the, the Berkshire Hathaway uh, letter to shareholders written by Warren Buffett, very insightful and that's free. You can download it from the Berkshire Hathaway website. Um, so I would say that um, that that's definitely something I would point towards. In terms of books, uh, there's a book called The Investment Checklist, which I found very useful. And there's a book that is quite a technical uh, book. When I say technical, it's still about the fundamentals, uh, but you probably need to have a, a bachelor degree or a CA or a CFA qualification. And that is a McKinsey book called Valuation, Measuring uh, and um, Managing the Value of Companies. So um, those would be two books that, that I would mention. Um, and then other than investment books, uh, I enjoy reading about uh, destinations globally, and I enjoy also traveling quite a bit. So 
Outside of investments, uh, I like reading about other cultures and traveling a lot. And that's the one thing I do outside of investments. Um, and, and that has also given me a lot of pleasure to travel as much as I can. Well, yeah, that was going to be my next question to you because I know you did mention beforehand that you, you love to travel. And uh, obviously, COVID and the lockdown worldwide would have put a, a, a halt onto that. And hopefully, we can get out of this lockdown situation globally soon enough. Are there anywhere, any particular places you've got, got your eyes set on for when the lockdown ends and you can get on an airplane again and head off somewhere? Uh, some people like to go to the place where they've been before, they, they know it and they feel comfortable and it feels like a second home. I like to go to places that I haven't been to before. So a few places that are still on my list that I want to go to include uh, South Korea, uh, it includes the Baltic countries, uh, and it includes Patagonia, uh, including perhaps uh, Antarctica. But uh, we'll see how, how uh, brave I am, whether I want to... Uh, to do that and go all the way to the south. I have been to the Arctic Circle, but Antarctica is, uh, is a bit more wild. So those are some of the places on my list. That sounds fascinating. Well, enjoy. JP, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much for your time. Uh, I've really appreciated it. And no doubt the listeners to this podcast are also due for a treat. Um, and you've, you've imparted such a lot of wisdom and knowledge. I can't thank you enough. And I look forward to uh, catching up with you again at some stage in the future. Great. Thanks, Garth. Appreciate the opportunity. It was great chatting to you. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of Talking with Traders, brought to you by IG, a world-leading CFD provider. We really are privileged to have such a leader in the field of online trading involved in this series. Please follow us on Facebook and engage with us there. And a reminder to make sure you subscribe to the series by clicking the subscribe button on your favorite app. Till next time.